Section twenty eight of the Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Goldfish. The Plain Speaker Opinions on Books, Men, and Things by William Hazlitt. Section twenty eight on Personal Character. Part two. I shall not undertake to decide exactly how far the original character may be modified by the general progress of society, or by particular circumstances happening to the individual, but I think the alteration, be it what it may, is more apparent than real, more in conduct than in feeling. I will not deny that an extreme and violent difference of circumstances, as that between the savage and the civilised state, will supersede the common distinctions of character and prevent certain dispositions and sentiments from ever developing themselves. Yet with reference to this, I would observe, in the first place, that in the most opposite ranks and conditions of life, we find qualities showing themselves which we should have least expected, grace in a cottage, humanity in a bandit, and sincerity in courts. And secondly, in ordinary cases, and in the mixed mass of human affairs, the mind contrives to lay hold of those circumstances and motives which suit its own bias and confirm its natural disposition, whatever it may be, gentle or rough, vulgar or refined, spirited or cowardly, open-hearted or cunning. The will is not blindly impelled by outward accidents, but selects the impressions by which it chooses to be governed with great dexterity and perseverance. Or the machine may be at the disposal of fortune, the man is still his own master. The soul, under the pressure of circumstances, does not lose its original spring, but, as soon as the pressure is removed, recoils with double violence to its first position. That which any one has been long learning unwillingly, he unlearns with proportionable eagerness and haste. Kings have been said to be incorrigible to experience. The maxim might be extended without injury to the benefit of their subjects, for every man is a king with all the pride and obstinacy of one, in his own little world. It is only lucky that the rest of the species are not answerable for his caprices. We laugh at the warnings and advice of others, we resent the lessons of adversity, and lose no time in letting it appear that we have escaped from its importunate hold. I do not think, with every assistance from reason and circumstances, that the slothful ever becomes active, the coward brave, the headstrong prudent, the fickle steady, the mean, generous, the coarse, delicate, the ill-tempered, amiable, or the knave, honest, but that the restraint of necessity and appearances once taken away, they would relapse into their former and real character again. Cacullus non facit monarchum. Manners, situation, example, fashion have a prodigious influence on exterior deportment, but do they penetrate much deeper? The thief will not steal by day, but his having this command over himself does not do away with his character or calling. The priest cannot indulge in certain irregularities, but unless his pulse beats temperately from the first, he will only be playing a part through life. Again, the soldier cannot shrink from his duty in a dastardly manner, but if he has not naturally steady nerves and strong resolution, except in the field of battle, he may be fearful as a woman, though covered with scars and honour. The judge must be disinterested and above suspicion, 
Yet should he have from nature an itching palm, an eye servile and greedy of office, he will somehow contrive to indemnify his private conscience out of his public principle, and husband a reputation for legal integrity as a stake to play the game of political profligacy with more advantage. There is often a contradiction in character which is composed of various and unequal parts, and hence there will arise an appearance of fickleness and inconsistency. A man may be sluggish by the father's side, and of restless and uneasy temper by the mother's, and he may favour either of these inherent dispositions according to circumstances. But he will not have changed his character any more than a man who sometimes lives in one apartment of a house, and then takes possession of another, according to whim or convenience, changes his habitation. The simple phlegmatic never turns to the truly fiery quality. So the really gay or trifling never become thoughtful and serious. The light-hearted wretch takes nothing to heart. He on whom, from natural carelessness of disposition, the shot of accident and dart of chance, fall like drops of oil on water, so that he brushes them aside with heedless hand and smiling face, will never be roused from his volatile indifference to meet inevitable calamities. He may try to laugh them off, but will not put himself to any inconvenience to prevent them. I know a man that, if a tiger were to jump into his room, would only play off some joke, some quip or crank or wanton wile upon him. Mortifications and disappointments may break such a person's heart, but they will be the death of him ere they will make him provident of the future, or willing to forego one idle gratification of the passing moment for any consideration whatever. The dilatory man never becomes punctual. Resolution is of no avail, for the very essence of the character consists in this, that the present impression is of more efficacy than any previous resolution. I have heard it said of a celebrated writer that if he had to get a reprieve from the gallows for himself or a friend, with leave be it spoken, and was to be at a certain place at a given time for this purpose, he would be a quarter of an hour behind hand. What is to be done in this case? Can you talk or argue a man out of his humour? You might as well attempt to talk or argue him out of a lethargy or a fever. The disease is in the blood. You may see it, if you are a curious observer, meandering in his veins and reposing on his eyelids. Some of our foibles are laid in the constitution of our bodies, others in the structure of our minds, and both are irremediable. The vain man, who is full of himself, is never cured of his vanity, but looks for admiration to the last, with a restless, suppliant eye, in the midst of contumely and contempt. The modest man never grows vain from flattery or unexpected applause, for he sees himself in the diminished scale of things. He will not have his nothings monstered. He knows how much he himself wants, how much others have, until you can alter this conviction in him, or make him drunk by infusing some new poison, some celestial ichor, into his veins. You cannot make a coxcomb of him. He is too well aware of the truth of what has been said, that the wisest amongst us is a fool in some things, as the lowest amongst men has some just notions, and therein is as wise as Socrates, so that every man resembles a statue made to stand against a wall or in a niche. On one side it is a Plato, an Apollo, a Demosthenes. On the other it is a rough, unformed piece of stone. Some persons of my acquaintance, who think themselves terrace et rotundus, and armed at all points with perfections, 
would not be much inclined to give in to this sentiment, the modesty of which is only equalled by its sense and ingenuity. The man of sanguine temperament is seldom weaned from his castles in the air, nor can you, by virtue of any theory, convert the cold, careful calculator into a wild enthusiast. A self-tormentor is never satisfied, come what will. He always apprehends the worst, and is indefatigable in conjuring up the apparition of danger. He is uneasy at his own good fortune, as it takes from him his favourite topic of repining and complaint. Let him succeed to his heart's content in all that is reasonable or important, yet if there is any one thing, and that he is sure to find out, in which he does not get on, this embitters all the rest. I know an instance, perhaps it is myself. Again, a surly man, in spite of warning, neglects his own interest, and will do so because he has more pleasure in disobliging you than in serving himself. A friendly man will show himself friendly to the last, for those who are said to have been spoiled by prosperity were never really good for anything. A good-natured man never loses his native happiness of disposition. Good temper is an estate for life, and a man born with common sense rarely turns out a very egregious fool. It is more common to see a fool become wise, that is, set up for wisdom, and be taken at his word by fools. We frequently judge of a man's intellectual pretensions by the number of books he writes, of his eloquence by the number of speeches he makes, of his capacity for business by the number of offices he holds. These are not true tests. Many a celebrated author is a known blockhead between friends, and many a minister of state whose gravity and self-importance pass with the world for depth of thought and weight of public care is a laughing-stock to his very servants and dependents. The talents of some men, indeed, which might not otherwise have had a field to display themselves, are called out by extraordinary situations and rise with the occasion. But for all the routine and mechanical preparation, the pomp and parade and big looks of great statesmen, or what is called merely filling office, a very shallow capacity, with a certain immovableness of countenance, is, I suppose, sufficient from what I have seen. Such political machines are not so good as the mock duke in the honeymoon. As to genius and capacity for the works of art and science, all that a man really excels in is his own and incommunicable. What he borrows from others he has in an inferior degree, and it is never what his fame rests on. Sir Joshua observes that Raphael, in his later pictures, showed that he had learnt in some measure the colouring of Titian. If he had learnt it quite, the merit would still have been Titian's, but he did not learn it, and never would. But his expression, his glory and his excellence, was what he had within himself first and last, and this it was that seated him on the pinnacle of fame, a preeminence that no artist without an equal warrant from nature and genius will ever deprive him of. With respect to indications of early genius for particular things, I will just mention that I myself know an instance of a little boy who could catch the hardest tunes when between two and three years old without any assistance but hearing them played on a hand organ in the street, and who followed the exquisite pieces of Mozart played to him for the first time so as to fall in like an echo at the close. Was this accident or education or natural aptitude? I think the last. All the presumptions are for it and there are none against it. In fine, 
do we not see how hard certain early impressions or prejudices acquired later are to overcome do we not say habit is a second nature and shall we not allow the force of nature itself if the real disposition is concealed for a time and tampered with how readily it breaks out with the first excuse or opportunity how soon does the drunkard forget his resolution and constrained sobriety at the sight of the foaming tankard and blazing hearth does not the passion for gaming in which there had been an involuntary pause return like a madness all at once it would be needless to offer instances of so obvious a truth but if this superinduced nature is not to be got the better of by reason or prudence who shall pretend to set aside the original one by prescription and management thus if we turn to the characters of women we find that the shrew the jilt the coquette the wanton the intriguer the liar continue all their lives the same meet them after the lapse of a quarter or half a century and they are still infallibly at their old work no rebuke from experience no lessons of misfortune make the least impression on them on they go and in fact they can go on in no other way they try other things but it will not do they are like fish out of water except in the element of their favourite vices they might as well not be as cease to be what they are by nature and custom can the ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots neither do these wretched persons find any satisfaction or consciousness of their power but in being a plague and a torment to themselves and every one else as long as they can a good sort of woman is a character more rare than any of these but it is equally durable look at the head of hogarth's idle apprentice in the boat holding up his fingers as horns at cuckold's point and ask what penitentiary what prison discipline would change the form of his forehead villainous low or the conceptions lurking within it nothing no mother's fearful warnings nor the formidable precautions of that wiser and more loving mother his country that fellow is still to be met with somewhere in our time is he a spy a jack ketch or an underling of office in truth almost all the characters in hogarth are of the class of incorrigibles so that i often wonder what has become of some of them have the worst of them been cleared out like the breed of noxious animals or have they been swept away like locusts in the whirlwind of the french revolution or has mr bentham put them into his panopticon from which they have come out so that nobody knows them like the chimney-sweeper boy at Sadler's Wells that was thrown into a cauldron and came out a little dapper volunteer. I will not deny that some of them may, like Chaucer's characters, have been modernised a little, but I think I could retranslate a few of them into their mother tongue, the original honest black letter. We may refine, we may disguise, we may equivocate, we may compound for our vices without getting rid of them as we change our liquors but do not leave off drinking we may in this respect look forward to a decent and moderate rather than a thorough and radical reform or without going deep into the political question i can conceive we may improve the mechanism if not the texture of society that is we may improve the physical circumstances of individuals and their general relations to the state though the internal character like the grain in wood or the sap in trees that still rises bend them how you will may remain nearly the same the clay that the potter uses may be of the same quality coarse or fine in itself 
though he may mould it into vessels of very different shape or beauty. Who shall alter the stamina of national character by any systematic process? Who shall make the French respectable or the English amiable? Yet the author of the year 2500 has done it. Suppose public spirit to become the general principle of action in the community. How would it show itself? Would it not then become the fashion like loyalty, and have its apes and parrots like loyalty? The man of principle would no longer be distinguished from the crowd, the servum pecus imitatorum. There is a cant of democracy as well as of aristocracy, and we have seen both triumphant in our day. The Jacobin of 1794 was the anti-Jacobin of 1814. The loudest chaunters of the paeans of liberty were the loudest applauders of the restored doctrine of divine right. They drifted with the stream, they sailed before the breeze in either case. The politician was changed, the man was the same, the very same. But enough of this. I do not know any moral to be deduced from this view of the subject, but one, namely, that we should mind our own business, cultivate our good qualities if we have any, and irritate ourselves less about the absurdities of other people, which neither we nor they can help. I grant there is something in what I have said which might be made to glance towards the doctrines of original sin, grace, election, reprobation, or the Gnostic principle that acts did not determine the virtue or vice of the character, and in those doctrines, so far as they are deducible from what I have said, I agree, but always with a salvo. End of section 28 Read by Goldfish